Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. Good evening and welcome to River Radio Politically Correct. This is Thursday, sorry, Wednesday, the 23rd of June. And you're joining me in the studio today is Michael Burton, and you're listening to me, Wisdom Da Costa. Michael, how are you, sir? Uh, good evening. I'm very well, thank you so Excellent. much indeed. Great to see the weather's turned. Turned? Turned which way? Okay. <laughs> it's only just stopped raining. Okay. Well, on that brief interlude, uh, you're listening to Wisdom to Costa and Michael Burton on River Radio. Today we are talking about PKD, polycystic kidney disease. Then we'll be talking about the political aspect of that, of course. Michael was shaking his head, looking at me there. No, I'm just shaking your head because you're going to need to tell me all about what that is anyway. I know I've seen a little bit about it, but I'm slightly in the dark of that, so we can talk about that. And then the incidence, or the apparently increased incidence in the area of dog napping, and of course, apparently child kidnapping as well. Well, I'm interested in the dog one. My children have grown up, but definitely the dog one. Okay. So we're going to start with the story that's hit the headlines this week. A story about a young man, well, I say young because everyone's young to me now, Warren Higgs, who lives in Windsor, who's about to have an operation to remove what is already, although they haven't been taken out yet, the world record holder kidneys. So the size of his kidneys are huge, bigger than anything else. World record, you make it sound like he's tried to achieve that. What? I mean, what is it? And you said PKD, what does that mean? Yes, Warren is suffering from polycystic kidney disease, and we'll be hearing later on from the CEO of the polycystic kidney disease charity, PKD, which is much easier to say, Tess Harris, who's got some fantastic insights and about this disease, which actually affects a lot more people than we realise. She calls it the hidden killer. Oh my gosh, that's a bit scary. It, it is indeed. So did you see the story this week? I, I, I caught a glimpse of a man with, a, with, with what looked like a very, very large uh, belly, that's all I can say. Yes. And, and it wasn't. I think that's fair. It wasn't a belly. Yeah, I mean, it's great to see that it was all over the news. Every single news channel picked it up after the BBC. And I must thank Andre Roden-Paul at the BBC, uh, BBC E for actually posting that story for us. So Warren has been suffering from this disease. Apparently there are 70,000 other people in the UK, so it's a lot more common what? than we realise. And the, when you hear Tess speaking about the conditions, it actually is a lot more serious than you think. But first, shall we speak to the world record holder? Warren Higgs, about, or rather the prospective world record holder, about his kidneys. I caught up with him earlier today, actually. Here's Warren. We're joined now by Warren Higgs. Warren, welcome to the show. Morning, Wisdom. Warren, your kidneys are estimated to be around 49 by 
19 by 27 centimetres. Now, the previous world record was 7.4 kilograms per kidney held by a patient in Delhi. And your kidney is about four times bigger and still growing. Your right-hand kidney alone is around 25 litres or 23 kilograms, and together you're carrying about 40 kilograms. So each kidney is around the size of a 20-kilogram water cooler bottle. And you've got two of these in your tummy. Wow. How Horrible. does it feel to be a record breaker? It's really not a nice record to have. I'd rather have any other one. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Now, well, when did this all start? I found out when I was 30 that my kidneys were, you know, were not great, but didn't really get told much about it. And then at 35, I had my big stroke. And it's just it was slowly got worse from from there. What impact has this had on your life? It, it's completely taken my life. Everyone knows I used to do everything around town, but now I I don't do anything. I'm on my sofa twenty four seven. I've known you for many years. Really positive person. You're the sort of person who does triathlons to recover from your stroke. I see cycling around winter on your mechanical recumbent tricycle for exercise, taking your Japanese Akita Foxy for a run. And obviously she needs a lot of exercise. It must be difficult to cope with the immobility put upon you by this dreadful disease. And also put upon you in a sense, by the authorities not funding this sort of a wheelchair. Isn't, how does it feel to carry two water coolers in your body? It's really hard considering I'm already paralyzed all my right side. To add 40 kilos of weight in one one place in my stomach, it's really difficult. In my head, I still want to do things. I still want to be the same person you met. You know, I want to take Foxy out every day. It kills me that I can't do it. You've also got the issue of what they call was body dysmorphia, where people see your body. I mean, you've got two water cooler-sized kidneys. That's going to have an impact on the visuals of your body. And people sometimes judge you. What sort of experience have you had of that? Yeah, I've had quite a lot of that. That's the hardest thing on my head. Yeah, you know, the hardest thing for my head to take is what pe- other people think of me and what the things they say. It's generally guys that will mouth off, but I've always been confident. I will have a go back to something to show that it's not fact. My message for all you guys out there, if you're looking to judge somebody, male or female, who looks as if they are not as fit as, as the, the common images, put a sock in it, guys. What stage are you at now? I understand that you have two options. Uh, yeah, I have one, which is six to 12 months to live. Or the second one is to have a 50-50 operation. So 50-50 in the sense that taking two massive chunks of organs out of your body will have a massive impact on, on your body, positive and possibly even negative. So what we're saying when you say 50-50, you're saying that you may live, you may not live. Yeah, exactly. It's a really risky operation. It's okay. hitting every single organ inside of me. It's crushing my heart. It's really risky for them to... Yeah, try and remove them. Now, post-op, Warren, your life will be a lot, lot better. And so we're fundraising to purchase a recumbent e-tricycle 
which has to be modified due to the medical impact of you having had seven strokes. How will this e-trike change your life for the better? It will give me my life back. To me, in my head, I'll be able to get on and do things like I used to do every day. I'll be able to go to the castle. My favourite thing is to go around the, the Great Park. Foxy loves the Great Park and she'll do 20 miles a day with me. I can't wait, but I'm very nervous about the op. I can completely understand that. Warren, thank you for joining us on the show. We wish you absolutely well for the operation. I obviously will be not just crossing my fingers, but praying and uh, waiting for the call when you get out of the operating theatre. We look forward to having you on the show to tell us how things are going. Warren, thank you very much for, for joining us on the show. Thank you, Wisdom. So I caught up with, Mike, with um, Warren earlier on, Michael. Now, it's quite a crazy story that he has these huge kidneys. Each kidney is the size of a giant water cooler bottle. Yeah, when, you put, into, when you put into that context, uh, I, my heart goes out to the guy to actually how he's managed to sustain. And you can, you can hear it in his voice. I know the interviews, we've got, we got some background interference, but th- you could hear in his voice that sense of almost despair of, and, and, of course, the anguish of, you, of what he's got to go through uh, to get. So, as you said to him, I, you know, I hope it goes well. Yeah. I also spoke to Mo Hanif, who's, raised, who's leading with Tia Stevens the fundraising efforts to try and raise this £9,500. Listen to what he says. It's quite surprising. And, but it, it's probably, you'll understand now why so many people have taken up this story. And it struck a chord with people. Here's Mo Hanif. We're joined now by Mo, Mo Hanif, who's the senior director of Windsor Cars and a member of the Windsor community for more than 30 years. Mo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Wisdom. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, what you've done with Tia for Driven Forward is quite astounding. I've been really impressed by the way you and Tia from Driven Forward have got together to raise funds for Warren. Tell us about the fundraising and uh, how you got him. Yeah, no, it started uh, around about uh, a year and a half ago during when the pandemic started. I contacted Tia because I really was impressed with what they were doing for the vulnerable in Windsor for the local community and the homeless. Something that I thought Windsor Cars should get involved in, being in the community for 30 years, something that we could give. Therefore, we thought, okay, let's do this. I spoke to Tia and I was doing a lot of deliveries personally as I wanted to get involved, see how people were getting conversation with people and just to make sure they are okay. And that's where I came across Warren. Started off by just doing deliveries, standard food deliveries of what he needed. And I was astounded by his positiveness, considering all that he had been through, the strokes, the accidents. It was very uplifting for me to see someone smiling and happy, even though all that has happened. So a few times I'd gone around, spoke to him, found out if he's okay, and loved the conversations with him because as soon as I left there, I was full of positivity and thinking, you know what? anything in life is achievable. And that was just because of Warren and the conversation I had with him. And then a few weeks later, I went to see Warren and he wasn't in a very good place. And I had found out about his kidney and the operation. And he was very, very down about everything. Um, and all he really wanted to do was get out into the local community, spread his positivity, but he wasn't able to because he didn't have the wheelchair that he needed for this. So that's where it kind of came around. So I spoke to Tia, my driven forward, and she was 
straight away on it. He said, look, we've always wanted to help Warren. We've been helping him for a long time. And I think something like the GoFundMe page, if it can raise the amount to get him that, it will just make a massive, massive difference, not just to him, but also to the people that he spreads his positivity around Windsor. And a lot of locals, other locals that I used to speak to, were aware that he's not been around because they used to see him in his tricycle wheelchair that he used to ride around. And he would stop and speak to people and, you know, all sorts. And again, it was just the general positivity that he would spread. And I think that needs to be given back, not just for Warren, but also for the local community. How much was needed? I think currently we stand just below £4,500, which has been donated, which has been incredible. And we want to thank everyone that has donated. We want to get to £9,500, which is minimum in honesty, because that will get him the wheelchair. But also we do need accessories and things like that. So we are trying to surpass the £9,500. But right now, the most important thing is the wheelchair. How can people donate? Where should they go to? They can donate by the GoFundMe page. So if they go into GoFundMe, that will come up with the GoFundMe page for them. They also can get in contact uh, with Windsor Cars, with myself. Uh, they can either go through the website. We have a chat bot, which is on the website, which links directly to myself. They can also go on our Facebook pages. So we've got Windsor Cars Facebook pages. I also am on Facebook myself as Mo Windsor. So if they want any more information or want to help, it doesn't have to be monetary. It could just be about sharing the positivity, sharing it throughout the community and getting other people to help. If they know someone within the industry that can help specifically for Warren, we'd be more than happy to get involved and get in touch and do what we can. Mo, thank you for joining us. And listen, well done to you and Tia for what you're doing for Warren. It is a fantastic positive spirit that you are actually spreading throughout Windsor. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, let's get this done for Warren and uh, very optimistic and let's just get this done for him. So that was Mo Hanif talking about the fundraising efforts. Now, Warren is an exceptional story. And as you've heard from Mo, very much an inspiration to many people in Windsor and well known in Windsor. Now, we're going to play a short, uh, a little song now. I asked Warren, what song would you like me to play? And he said to me, can you play these two artists? They're both friends of mine and I want to promote their music. That just really sums it all about it, Warren. So after this song, which is something about you by Leanne Louise. Leanne Louise, I hope you're listening out there. We'll be speaking to Tess Harris, who is the CEO of the PKD charity and looking at the deeper issues about PKD, how it depletes people's lives and some of the political aspects of funding. It's not a sexy charity. But first, let's have a listen to Leanne Louise, Something About You. Enjoy. Let's get down, let's get down to business. Give you one more night, one more night to get this. We've had a million, million nights just like this. So let's get down, let's get down to business. Mama, please don't worry about me Cause I'm about to let my heart speak My friends keep telling me to leave this So let's get down, let's get down to business Let's get down, let's get down to business Give you one more night, one more night to get this We've had a million, million nights just like this so let's get down, let's get down to business Let's get down, let's get down to business Give you one more night, one more night to get this 
Something about you, and there really was something about Warren. Absolutely, yeah, that was he's, something. He's, something about you by Leanne Louise and Susetta. I hope I pronounced the name correctly. By the way, uh, truly remarkable man, and uh, we can only wish him the very best. And and I love the 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 the, the gentleman was sorting out the funds and raising the money again. The optimism in him was also energetic, and you'd hope for the best. Let's hope for the best. I'm sure. Absolutely. Be. Now I caught up with. Tess Harris, who's the CEO of PKD Charity. I was absolutely surprised by what she had to say. It was quite a soulful and emotional interview, so I hope you really enjoy this. Well, as just a bit of music instead. That's okay. Nothing wrong with a bit of music. Apologise for that. Yeah. Was that Tess singing? No, this is exactly the same issue you mentioned earlier on. <laughs> Range of industries. Tess is somebody who suffers with PKD herself. The PKD charity was started in 2000 by Dr. Anand Saga, a genetics consultant, and Pam Hooley at St. George's. Tess, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Wisdom. I'm delighted to be here. Tess, what is PKD and how important are our kidneys? Great question. PKD stands for polycystic kidney disease. It's actually the world's most common inherited kidney disease. It affects about one in a thousand people, so that over 12 million people worldwide and about 70,000 people in the UK. It's more than a kidney disease in fact, although it mostly affects the kidneys, but it's what's called a systemic condition affecting the brain, the liver, the digestive tract, the bladder, and the kidneys, and sometimes the bones of people who are affected. Just to give you a little bit of a background to what kidneys are, and I'm sure you all know about your kidneys. You've got two of them. They're, they're normally towards the back of the body. They play an incredibly important role in managing a number of functions of a human body, which many people aren't aware of. So the kidneys not only filter the blood 24-7, 
365 days a year throughout your lifetime and turn that, uh, remove the waste from the blood and turn it into urine, which uh, we're all familiar with. But they also have three other important roles. They help produce red blood cells. And consequently, when kidneys start failing, one of the complications of kidney disease, including PKD, is anemia with low hemoglobin. They also convert vitamin D from diet, sunshine, into a form that the body can use to help maintain strong bones. And again, with failing kidneys, a weakness of the bones is a very common complication. And then finally, they regulate blood pressure. And this is very critical because many people with kidney disease, including PKD, suffer from high blood pressure and consequently have a very high risk of cardiovascular disease, which is mostly heart attacks and strokes. And so, unfortunately, the most common cause of death for people with kidney disease, including PKD, is not kidney failure, but actually a heart attack or a stroke. Wow, you've gone through a range of factors there, high blood pressure, stroke, the issues of brittle bone, perhaps, disease, many things. How does this actually affect PKD sufferers in real life? And I understand Mm -hmm. that it can affect them in two broad ways. Yes, so PKD, as the name suggests, polycystic, means that cysts form in the kidneys. They also form in the other organs as well. But in the kidneys, they have a particularly profound effect. So a normal kidney is about the size of a fist. And when the cysts form in polycystic kidney disease, they can cause the kidneys to grow four or five times in length and up to 100 times in weight. And as a visual analogy, I can, if you can imagine a huge rugby ball, that's what uh, a kidney might turn into from the size of a fist. And I imagine two of those in your body. And you can start to imagine the impact of that on, uh, on someone's frame. So the kid, now we're a bit confined by our rib cage. The kidneys have got, have got to go somewhere when they get large. So they often push out at the front in the abdominal area, making uh, people look nine months pregnant or as though they've got a fat, uh, rather large beer belly. They also move around the internal organs and start crushing organs uh, such as the heart. They push up the lungs. They can squash the the stomach um, and the intestines. And so people with PKD at the extreme stages often find they can't eat very well. They can't sleep very well. They can't get comfortable. They can't often they can't do all the normal things that most people do without thinking about it, tying a shoelace, bending over, hugging a child. And the other, one of the other problems with PKD as a result of these extremely large uh, cysts is that they get infected and bleed and cause pain. And so two in three people with PKD will have chronic, sometimes disabling pain, which can only be treated by morphine. So they, and this is, how, this is uh, something that people will be experiencing probably from about the age of 25 to 30 onwards throughout their lives. And at the moment, there is no cure for this condition. The cysts just keep on growing and growing and growing and growing to eventually they sort of strangulate the the normal healthy kidney and overcome the function of the kidney, causing kidney failure. 
this is a quite a deteriorating condition. So it will start to affect what you can and can't do. It would not just affect what you can and can't do, but also then start to cause greater levels of sickness and disease. So the quality of life sounds as if it will deteriorate substantially. How have you coped with that? I've been with the charity 15, 16 years, but one thing that's very common is that people get very anxious about their future with this condition because they're often diagnosed quite young. And indeed, I was diagnosed quite young in my 20s. I inherited it from my father, who inherited it from his mother, who died before when he was about three. And so we didn't really know much about it in the family, but I, along with three siblings, inherited it from my dad. There's a one in two chance that a parent with the condition will pass it on. Unfortunately, four of us who inherited it. So when I was told um, in my 20s that I had the condition, I went to a medical bookshop just before the internet. And I opened the book and it said, uh, incurable, average age of death, 57. Uh, now, I was, I was a fairly independent sort of person. And I thought, well, 57, OK, I'll just get on and uh, enjoy my life. But, you know, it's not always been so straightforward. There have been times when I've become anxious, particularly at moments of crises. I had uh, an occurrence, I was abroad when a cyst burst, I had to be operated on, and it was a very frightening experience. And then I knew my kidneys would fail because in our family we have uh, a particular genetic mutation of PKD that causes fast kidney failure. My elder sister had already uh, gone into kidney failure and had a, had, had a transplant, and my younger sister had kidney failure and so I wasn't really surprised when eventually my kidneys failed three years ago and I had to start dialysis which I did every day doing a process of two or three times a day until after a year I was fortunate enough to get a kidney transplant and that was uh, last year in fact during Covid. It, so throughout my life I've had ups and downs. Um, I've, I've Learned to accept it. It's just my personality. I, I'm uh, what's called a stoic. So I come to accept my my fate, which is in my genes, in my DNA. But yes, uh, sometimes, you know, there are times when you think, why me? Why, you know, why have I inherited this? I try and stay healthy. I try and keep, I keep fit. I've taken all my medication for my blood pressure. And now I take my medication to stop my new kidney rejecting. But it's something I'll live with forever and most likely will be the, the cause of my ultimate uh, death. Well, that's quite a sobering range of issues, psychological issues to have to deal with. Now, you also mentioned genetic guilt when we were talking about this earlier. Tell us about genetic guilt. Mm. Yes. Um, so genetic guilt is experienced by people who, who suddenly discover that they have inherited this condition and have already passed it on to their children. So that was in the case, case of my father. He didn't know he had it because he didn't, he didn't know what his mother died of. And so he'd all, he and my mum had already had six kids, four of which inherited. Now, often in a situation like that, a, par- a parent will, will become overwhelmed with a feeling that they've passed on a sometimes devastating and life-threatening condition. The other type of guilt is when somebody who knows a young person, mum or dad, because it affects men and women equally, knows they have the condition and then, is, and then is thinking about planning a family. And so at that moment, there's a lot of anguish. And, you know, I've even heard of couples breaking up because one of them who has the condition doesn't want to have a child, for example, and the other one does. 
we hear of people who deliberately don't have children um, rather than pass a condition on. And so this is a, um, a very common and it's becoming increasingly more common because people are being diagnosed younger now. So we have, we at the charity support, a lot of people who are confronting those decisions. And even if they have children, they've, just, they've discovered they then have to decide at what age to tell their children and to encourage them to be tested or potentially diagnosed for the condition themselves. One of the drawbacks with PKD is that the minute you're diagnosed, it affects your insurance. So I've never been able to get life insurance or private health insurance. Travel insurance? Travel insurance, you you have an extra premium, particularly as your kidneys fail. So when I was waiting for a kidney on the transplant list, just before COVID, of course, after COVID, we didn't travel. When COVID started, we didn't travel. But yes, I was unable to travel because they wouldn't insure me. Even although I had, I could go to Europe with just a basic uh, EHIC, I couldn't get private insurance. And the other thing it can affect is careers. Because if you're having kidney failure, so on average it's in, in the early to mid-50s when you have kidney failure. Some people much earlier. Now you can imagine, you know, if you're a 40-year-old, you're, you're uh, heading, heading up the promotion ladder, you've got a great career ahead of you, you've got a demanding job, busy position and you're suddenly confronted with a condition that might in a few years time cause you to be on dialysis which sometimes actually results in people losing their jobs it these these all have a psychological burden and a socioeconomic burden not just on the individual but their family members yeah well added to all of that you've got body dysmorphia Warren was telling us how, for him, he finds that's the biggest issue that he struggles to cope with. How have you coped with that? <laughs> yes, body dysmorphia is a bit of a fancy name for something which is not very well understood. So, you know, you can imagine a sort of normal human outline and someone who looks quite slim perhaps on on the outside but then you look at their front and they have this enormous protrusion as i said women are often considered to be pregnant but it's pregnancy it doesn't it doesn't go away it's a bump that doesn't go away after nine months and i've known men uh, being accused of you know fat and beer belly and so on it it's very hard i've been in some ways a bit fortunate i've got i've got a tool and my kidneys have sort of gone up and down so they actually write down in my groin area. And indeed, as a result of that, if I have to have another transplant, which is a possibility because transplants don't last forever, then they will have to remove one of my kidneys because it's just too big, but even squeeze in a new kidney. My two uh, of my two sisters, two of them had to have theirs removed because they were so huge. And I, I know many people like Warren whose kidneys are engrossed just just uh, just huge and you can't wear anything you know it's it's really difficult and it may sound trivial but it's really difficult to find clothes that fit because often you're you're not fat well usually you're not fat everywhere people are often malnourished with this condition because they're not eating very well they can't keep food down so you look at their arms and their legs they look thin and gaunt and lacking muscle and then you see this enormous belly in front of them it's contradictory and very upsetting for a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned that there's no cure for this. And for some people, not for some people, you mentioned there was no cure for this. And for everyone, their kidneys at some stage will fail. And if they fail at an earlier stage, the kidneys won't grow quite so large. But if they grow, if their kidneys 
like Warrens are high functioning, they tend to grow and grow and grow. But either way, the end is that uh, your kidneys will fail at some stage. Why haven't we found a cure for this? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's a condition that's been known about for centuries. It was a famous Polish king 500 years ago was identified with it. And it's, and it's common. Uh, it, it's a very com- One of the reasons is it's a very complicated genetic mutation. In fact, there are two genes that are involved and it affects the whole body. So you can't even do gene therapy because it, it's, it's, it's on all the, it's, it's a, in every organ of the body. So you'd have to sort of, you know, target every organ of the body to, be, to eradicate it. It's just not possible. So what, the, what researchers have been looking for over the years is to look for the mechanism that causes the cysts to start forming, filling with fluid and growing. Now, lots of people have a cyst somewhere in their body quite common to have a solitary cyst in your kidney or your liver so on but typically they're kind of self-limited and they don't always get very big but something is malfunctioning in the polycystic kidney and it keeps causing this fluid fluid filled build up build up build up pushing out these cysts and then expanding the kidneys so the researchers have been searching for to understand first of all how that works but then find a drug that will stop it um, from from, from uh, acting. Research is very expensive, extremely expensive. You know, it can cost a billion pounds to develop a drug for a condition. And unfortunately, uh, believe it or not, despite the fact we've all got kidneys and they're all very important, and possibly one in 10 of the world's population might have kidney disease of some form, very little money goes into kidney research. Uh, it's significantly underfunded compared with other conditions such as cancer and, and even some rare conditions that many people will have heard of, like cystic fibrosis and so on. And this is a global problem, and, in, and of course in the UK is a problem too. So we, 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 with other kidney charities, are doing a lot to try and raise awareness and, and uh, get more funding put into kidney disease and particularly polycystic kidneys because it is so common. It counts for one in 10 people who've had a transplant or on dialysis. So that's a, a very costly problem as well. Just, yeah. just as an idea, if you're on dialysis, it can cost £40,000 a year. Now, the NHS of the NHS budget, the cost of keeping people on dialysis transplant is between 1.5% and 2% of the whole of the NHS budget which is a massive amount of money for actually quite a low number of people who get to that stage. So we're urging more research. To give you an example, polycystic kidney disease, through some funding from, from charities and the government, 2018, the latest data we have, there was about £600,000 £600, spent on polycystic kidney disease research. By comparison, the cystic fibrosis uh, Charity alone spent over four million pounds on a condition that is probably half as uh, common. It's a rare condition, devastating condition, but nonetheless is receiving a lot more funding money than is coming into polycystic kidneys and chronic kidney disease. Okay. Now, who are the decision makers? I mean, obviously, Matt Hancock comes to the mind. Is there anyone else we should be calling, tweeting and say, come on, put more money into PKD research, please? Well, if you if you did email Matt Hancock, he would basically say 
the government will fund the best science. That's always their kind of standard answer because they, they, and to be fair, they don't, they can't really influence the direction. It's for, um, it's, it's for organisations such as the Medical Research Council and the National Institute of Health Research to make the funding decisions. But we do need more fundamental research into the problem. And a lot of that will come from charities like us. Everybody's heard of British Heart Foundation and Millen and uh, Cancer Research K and so on. Well, we do have, there are there are four or five of us kidney charities in the UK and as a as a way to get to get uh, funding going it's to, it's to donate to the kidney research charities uh, including of course ourselves PKD okay. to, to fund research into PKD. So in a first step to start the ball rolling and the sort of seed funding that you need is going to be please donate to PKG Charity or Kidney Research UK or some of these other charities that focus on issues relating to kidneys. Now, we're also going to be fundraising for Warren, but you also mentioned kidney transplants. How can Mm -hmm. we improve the situation there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of keeping people alive, because that's what it is, without dialysis or transplant, you you die. Uh, Despite the cost of of keeping people alive, there's been hardly any innovation in this area for 50 years again it's down to the funding but it's also perception that well you know you can put somebody on dialysis to give them a transplant and then then they're not going to die are they're going to be saved but these are not life these are not life curing treatments they they just merely prolong the day by a a few years or so and wouldn't have sorry carry on I was just saying, even after you've had a transplant, you have to take drugs for life to stop rejecting the, the, the kidney or the liver or any, any other organ you may have. And there is a high risk of cancer. So I, from now on, have to wear factor 50 and a hat wherever I go to avoid skin cancer. And there's, there's also a risk of diabetes and other complications. But so, yes, we need more research into that. But also we need we need more people to, to keep on signing the organ donor register and telling their family, importantly, telling their family and their GPs that they've signed the organ donor register, because that is, is, is a start in the right direction. Getting people to sign the organ donor register so that more people can get transplants, because transplant has a better outcome than being on dialysis. But as I said, it doesn't it doesn't cure you, but it's it, it has a better outcome. And to do that needs uh, more more awareness. I mean, it's still a surprise to people that they can actually give a kidney to somebody while they're alive. You've got two of them. You can live on one. And is there Um, a bit of a fear or a stigma about giving away one of your kidneys? No, I don't think it is. I, well, obviously it's a fear because it's an operation. So, and it's an operation that's taken very seriously, of course, by the doctors and surgeons because you're operating on a healthy person. And you have to be healthy. You have to be 110% healthy, in fact, to give a kidney. But recovery is pretty quick. And you're monitored, actually, for life thereafter, which can be very helpful because you can then pick up any issues you might have on in later life. I think it's just that people people just seem very unaware of kidneys, their importance, and and what happens when they go wrong it's a bit of a silent disease in many ways you know if you met me on the street you wouldn't know that i had a life-threatening condition and uh, 
three kidneys inside me, two extremely large ones. And it, it, we don't look that unwell, even when we are unwell. And the public doesn't really understand kidneys and why it's so vitally important to take care of them and, and be willing to give one away after you've died. You don't need it. Let somebody else have the benefit of it for a few more years. Okay. So I would really urge listeners, 70,000 people in the UK have this condition and it becomes increasingly difficult to live with aneurysms, with heart attacks, with failure of your kidneys, with failure of lots of different types of organs. So you slow down. Sooner or later, you're going to die unless you get a new kidney. And if your kidney takes a long time to give the, give it up, then you're going to look incredibly big as, as Warren does. But the way to help people, 70,000 people, there's a lot of people in the UK. The way you can help them then, we're saying, is to write to the MRC, ask them for more funding for PKD and other kidney diseases, donate money to start the ball rolling to PKD, to Kidney Research UK and other charities, donate to Warren as well. And of course, sign a donor card and even consider if you're very healthy, giving away one of your two kidneys, because each kidney, I understand, is more than adequate to run your whole body and some. Have I missed out anything there? <laughs> We've summed it up perfectly. Okay. <laughs> Tess, how could people... You can come and work for us as our advocate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tess, how could people get in touch with you and where can they go for more information, whether they are a sufferer or they just want to know more information? Yeah. So we have a website, of course, which is pkdcharity.org.uk. You can find us on Facebook. Just look for facebook.com, search PKD Charity. You'll find us. We have a big active community of people with PKD. And we're also on Twitter, again, at PKD Charity. I'm also on Twitter a lot. You can find me on uh, at Electra. That's E-L-E-K-T-R-A. Uh, I'm usually hovering somewhere on the internet because that uh, is an industry I've been working in for years. Yeah, just come onto the website, make a donation. Hopefully you've got the link for Warren's GoFundMe. Our charity sadly can't provide money directly to Warren, but we're very supportive and, and been promoting within our groups his GoFundMe because he's well-known and valued friend of our community. And we are hoping that his, his surgery goes well. Tess Harris, thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Thank you and goodbye. That was Tess Harris from the PKD Charity. It raises lots of very interesting questions. What sort of things come up in, in your mind pretty prominently? Well, sympathy mostly. Mm. Uh, I didn't know enough about it. And now to understand so many people are affected. And for her to be involved with that whilst she's still a sufferer mm. uh, and her situation can deteriorate uh, is uh, quite moving. Moving. I'm very surprised to hear that, although... I mean, we can't rank diseases. Everyone suffers and, and the suffering is terrible. Yet for similar diseases, 
the amount of money invested in PKD is so small. You do wonder what, what is the rationale for the Medical Research Council for actually making those investment decisions? I, I, sadly, I, 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 my gut feeling is there are big ones out there that attract an awful lot of, of money and investment, common cold, mm. cancer, uh, and other ones have to, they do take a back step. Uh, and they then rely heavily on charities to raise money to support them. Um, One of the things that um, Tess said is that it's really hard to get people to come forward, celebrities who suffer from this, to say, I'm a celebrity, I am going to push this. I wonder if it's to do with the body dysmorphia. Gosh, I don't know. Um, I'd like to to believe that that that's not the case, Mm. but... If it once it becomes extreme, as it has done, obviously in the in the case we were talking about, then you can't hide it, can you? No, it's true. Um, Unless of course you just lose a kidney, but then you're right; that'll be all in the press anyway. Yeah, and and um, I think celebrities, those that are in that status, actually they can see it as a way of of promoting themselves as well as also supporting something. I think I don't. I don't know. It's very difficult to say when you're not a sufferer. You know, we, we're all afflicted by lots of different things. Some are more severe than others. And I think it's, it's that realisation and the exposure that this can bring uh, through news that will actually be helpful. And I think that will generate uh, more funds and then potentially uh, a solution if, if that's at all possible. I tell you what I've learned out of this, what I'm taking away from this, is actually I am going to sign up for a donor card now, or rather allow people to use my organs. I'd never really thought about it until I heard and listened to real people suffering. Do you know, well, I mean, I, you're, you're talking to the converted because I've had a donor card since I was 18, uh, and uh, help yourself any bit you want. It's a bit like giving blood. I've been giving blood for as long as I can remember, and I will continue to do it for as long as I can. Mm. Um, And I understand the difficulty some people have from a religious perspective or from a moral one, but uh, if we can do anything to help... And and listening to to what they were both saying, this is not about necessarily about uh, something that we're trying to eradicate, which would be marvellous. It's the quality of life and how it has a massive impact on their quality of life. Uh, which is so terrible. Yeah, that plus also the, the political issue, which is if you're listening from the Medical Research Council or Matt Hancock, you might be listening, you never know. Why are you giving so little money to research for PKD when there are so many sufferers, 70,000 sufferers in the UK alone? Question to ask. And a question, if you've got the answer, please get back to us. We're going to change the subject now. We're going to look at a couple of in, well, they're not interesting, they're actually a bit alarming. In Slough yesterday, a young girl uh, was two Eastern European guys tried to kidnap her. And that sent, obviously, alarm bells through, through, throughout the community. I spoke to Louise Warbrick, who's the inspector of the Thames Valley, and about kidnapping. And is it something that is on the increase? Because we've heard similar stories with the, in the Met Police. Now, the Met Police, their contacts there have said to me, well, look, we're not sure. It could be an alarmist thing. It could be somebody just trying to sort of make news. One thing they both say, they both say, is if there's a problem, and, and this goes for any crime that you hear, that you see, that you suffer, report it. If the police don't have the stats, they can't 
actually focus the resources. So if something happens, you see it, you hear it, you experience it, please report it to the police. Don't hesitate. I think that's a really important part in this because we're, we've, sadly, we've got to a point sometimes where we don't report things because we don't think anything's going to be, anything's going to be done. But if the statistics are going to help them justify investing in that, then that has to be good. Now, Louise actually said that the types of crimes, these sorts of crimes are fairly rare, but obviously when they happen, they're very serious. But what also is happening in the Thames Valley area is that we're not sure whether it's these incidents. Sometimes they are strangers, and that aspect is unusual. The bit that's not unusual is the uh, drug gangs and, the, and any sort of sexual exploitation. That is something that's happening. The other thing that also happens is, of course, one parent looking to, to get custody or access to their child. So it's very hard to know if there is a trend or there isn't a trend. But she offers this, these bits of advice. She says, try and use the Velcro, Velcro technique. Grab onto something like a tree, a bike, a signpost. Shout loudly as you can. Stop, stranger. And use the windmill technique. Windmill your arms around and around and around so that they find it hard to actually get hold of you. And make a lot of noise, as much noise as you can. So do, they, you, do you want me to demonstrate? No, perhaps not. <laughs> what are you going to grab hold of? No, Sam, run! <laughs> I was just going to start... Oh, I was looking for some Velcro and then I was going to start screaming. But you're right. Uh, the main thing is make a lot of noise. Uh, the more noise, you're, it's distracting. And if you can distract them for a moment, that might give you the chance to run away and they're unlikely to chase you. So it certainly was a very alarming story in Slough. Yeah, the, the, the rise of, of ways of generating money for whatever they need is scary. They, they, they are, we have to accept the fact that we live in a world where uh, the old perception of the big bad robber burglar not being a bright spark have long gone. They know and they work out the ways of doing things. So trying to be smarter than them is always going to be a challenge. Now on to another related story is the rise of dog napping. Interestingly, not so much in London, I hear from the Met Police, but certainly in the rural areas that are covered by the Thames Valley. Valley. Yeah. Now, and the price and value of dogs has increased phenomenally. I, uh, I'm, this is a scary one for any dog owner. I'm a dog owner. God bless Bruce. Uh, in fact, a lot of the River Radio people have all got dogs. Um, and it is. And I was talking today to someone about that. And um, there are huge concerns because they, the, the criminals that do it know they can make money. The criminals that do it also know that the punishment doesn't fit the crime at the moment. They have no concern whatsoever about the emotional connection you may or may not have with your animal. They are just interested in it for one thing only. And they are good at doing it. They can lure the dog away from the owner they can they will jump over fences and pick the animal it is and sadly it is going up and up have you heard any stories locally of um, people who've had their dogs nap, uh, napped or kidnapped uh, i've read lots locally uh, so it is on the increase in the area i i don't know anyone personally that's had their dog stolen uh, I've, I've, written, I've, I've read about it on social media, people within the area, certainly within the Thames Valley area, and it's on the increase, and, and stolen out of their garden. So we're not talking about walking around woods unattended, but stolen out of the garden. Now, people are becoming more aware, but I regularly take Bruce out, let him off the lead, uh, and uh, I've, I'm conscious now 
we have a long chat about it, but he just, he's a dog. He'll do what he wants. Um, so I just try and keep him in sight all the time. Okay. But the, the, the risk, and of course the value of the dogs, I'm staggered about how much an animal can cost nowadays. Mm. So there's money in that. So how much would, would an animal be? Uh, I know that 10 years ago, even £700 was the sort of price you'd pay for a puppy, for a, um, a Labrador, not, for example. But nowadays, 10 years ago, never that much. Really? But no. I, I, and now, several thousand uh, for your average dog pedigree, or as they like to call them, the, breed, the bred dogs, the hybrid dogs, or as I call them, the mongrels. But they fetch a penny. So if, if you're starting somewhere just below £2,000 and up, pretty much for most dogs. Any sort of pedigree dog? Any sort. And some of the, some of the more expensive ones, uh, French poodles, bulldogs, whatever like that, they will... They will they, they will set a, an expensive cost. And, of course, if you can steal a dog that looks like any other dog, uh, then, of course, it's much, much easier to sell or, mm. or, or move on. Um, and anything you can do, in the same way as we were talking about child napping, anything that you can do to reduce the likelihood of it happening, that's keep your dog on a lead, uh, make sure that no one can get into your garden, be careful if you can let your dog out in the garden, be out in the garden at the same time. Um there will be people that get caught out sure. and they're becoming more and more blatant about how they do it. Now, here's some of the advice that Inspector Warbrick, again, Louise Warbrick, gave. She said, make sure you microchip your dog and then call the microchip company if your dog is, if you're registered and list them as missing instantly. Don't wait. Call the police, get a crime reference number. Again, contacting the police, giving them the information is very, very important, listeners. Get in touch with local vets, dog wardens and shelters and charities there's actually a website called www.doglost.co.uk and you can register your dog is missing there and finally she also says put up posters of your dog in the local area with contact details and use social media to get the word around basically make your dog too hot to handle yeah make you your and, and this is a this is a reality make more noise than the next person it's a little bit like uh, your house if you don't want your house to be burgled you can get a burglar alarm if you haven't got a burglar alarm if you put up a false burglar alarm and the other houses next door to you don't have it you've reduced the chances of it happening to you so anything that you can can, can protect your animal by doing something like that is the right thing if they're going to do it the cruel reality is don't do it to me because i will make a lot of noise mm. And, and, you know, dog owners have a massive, unconditional love for their animals and they will do anything. I know I would, mm. um, but I don't want it to happen. I don't want it to come close to that. So, you know, wheeling your arms and making a lot of noise, but you've got to keep your dog close to you. Yeah. So what do you think of the top 10 dogs that have been stolen over the last five years? Of course, it's a game. It's, well, it's not really a game. Well, OK, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go with... Number 10, number 10. Labrad... Um, a poodly doodly thing. <laughs> no, it's not actually on the French list. French bulldog. Bulldog. French bulldog. Great. Yes. Where is French bulldog? French bulldog is number three. Number three. Third most popular dog to steal. Span uh, Labrador. No, interesting. That's not on the top ten list. Uh, you think, wouldn't you? Terrier. Terrier. Let's have a look. As uh, a yes, number eight. The Queen's favourite Yorkshire terriers. Corgis. No, she's got oh, Corgis. Which Queen are you talking about? I don't know, mate. It's long. It's, it's hot in the studio. Queen of Yorkshire, yeah. So <laughs> Yorkshire Terriers. I wouldn't say Corgis are up there. Dachshunds. No. Wow, I thought they were really popular. No. 
Um, Shall I put you out your misery? What, go on then. Go on then. Number 10, American Bulldog. Okay. Uh, number nine, Cocker Spaniel. Yep. Number eight was the aforesaid Not the Queen's Dog, the Yorkshire Terrier. <laughs> number seven, the very popular German Shepherd. Number, number six, Bulldog. Number five, Pug. It's funny, Pugs always seem to yeah. gravitate to me. I don't know what it is about me that Pugs seem to like. <laughs> don't answer that. Number four, Jack Russell Terrier. Number three, the French Bulldog. My screen number two is the Chihuahua. They're all little dogs. Well, not number one. Number one is the Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Okay. You wouldn't want to get go wrong with stealing a stuffy, no. would you? No. Well, I'll tell Bruce. He's a Dalmatian, so he'll be fine. Okay. Brilliant. We've come to the end of the show now. Uh, hard to imagine that it really is the end of the show. But we're going to play you out with Stand Up by Cherry and one of Warren's other favourite artists, which is Ms Pink. So here we go. Lightning strikes every time she moves. And everybody's watching her, but she's looking at you. very much for listening to us here on River Radio with Mike Burton and myself Wisdom DaCosta. Join us again next week at 6 o'clock for another show full of packed political information and if ever we'll always tell you what to do. Remember, if you don't, who will?
across the Thames Valley. Across the Thames Valley. This is River Radio. This is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. 